powerful name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. I want to invite you to flip your Bibles open if you have a Bible with you to Luke chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at a a few texts within uh, the opening chapters of Luke this morning as we turn our attention to the Christmas story as recorded by Luke. I want to begin this morning by sharing a story from our life as a family this summer. I'm sure you've had an experience uh, maybe different in some ways, but, but uh, what I want to share is a story about something that seemed not to make sense. It's kind of uh, just a, a crazy story. Some of you perhaps are familiar with Peace Arch Provincial Park uh, on the Canadian side of the border out in Surrey. Uh, it, it's a park that actually straddles the 49th parallel. It's, it's on the border between Canada and the United States. So the Canadian side of the park is called Peace Arch Provincial Park. The, the American side of the park is called uh, Peace Arch Historical State Park, but it's, it's one park, and it's really kind of unique. It's right on the border at the Douglas Crossing uh, where the I-5 and Highway 99 meet, and uh, it's this place where for years uh, Canadians, Americans can go, and they can meet family and friends. You go into the park from wherever you're coming, and you can mix and mingle, and you don't have to go through border control. Uh, it's just kind of this uh, weird international zone where you can go and meet. Well, we were going uh, this summer to Hannah and Calvin's wedding in BC, and uh, Christine's oldest brother and his wife, their four daughters and four sons-in-law and assorted grandkids, they live in the Seattle area, and so they weren't able to come, and so we wanted to see them, and so the plan was we'll meet at Peace Arch Park. Uh, We'll come from the Canadian side, they'll come from the American side, we can meet and have a picnic, it'll be great, it'll be good to connect uh, and visit there even if they can't join us at the wedding. Well, if you've ever been there, uh, on the Canadian side, there is uh, the road that we drove to approach the park. It's called Zero Avenue. This is really weird for me, having grown up in Ontario, where to get to the States, you cross a bridge. Uh, Here, you're driving on Zero Avenue. Right next to you is this little ditch, like a little ditch. A six-year-old could hop across it, and, and then you're in the States. And so we drove along and parked there. Now, What had happened within weeks, June 18th, just less than two weeks before we got there, Canada had closed down uh, the Canadian side of the park because of COVID. And so we were told when we got to BC, when we didn't plan ahead, we didn't know, we didn't assume we'd need passports because you're not crossing the border, at least in theory. But because Canada had closed the border, we needed passports. They said we drove there, and all along Zero Avenue, there were Border Patrol agents and RCMP officers. And so we parked and said, like, hey, we're from Edmonton. We're here to visit family from Seattle. Uh, and they said, well, you can go into the park, but if you come back without a passport, you'll be charged with illegal entry. <laughs> and I thought, really? Like, Really? And it was, it, was, it was frustrating because in normal circumstances, you just go to the park, you can have your picnic and, and go home. But, but here, there were all these Canadian agents. There was no American agents. You were allowed to go there, but to come back would be illegal without passports. And so uh, one particular RCMP officer saw my frustration, and he, he called me over, and he said, uh, kind of wink, wink, I'm going to be looking this way for the next while, busily patrolling the border. So if you for say, were to go over to this side and, and not cross the border, he didn't let me do that, but he said you can stand along the border in a spot where there's no ditch 
and your other family on the American side can stand about 12 inches away from you, you can visit for a while. I won't notice for the next while. And so we did that. We stood about 12. We weren't allowed to pass anything back and forth. In order for them to give us a sandwich, we didn't end up eating. They would have to cross the border, and some of our Canadian relatives had passports, so they could do that. They could come bring us a sandwich and then walk back across. It was just really strange. Kind of seemed foolish. It, it just didn't make sense to me. This morning, we're going to spend a few minutes exploring together the Christmas story as recounted to us by Luke. And, and when we stop, I mean, sometimes we're so familiar that we fail to see the parts of this story that are shocking, that don't make sense, that seem kind of foolish from a human perspective. There are a number of things that I want to draw your attention to. The first is a great contrast that we see in Luke 1. Uh, This contrast between two characters that we were introduced to uh, whose stories parallel one another incredibly close. One of those characters is a priest named Zechariah, and the other is a peasant girl named Mary. Uh, Immediately after his historical preface saying, hey, this is what I'm writing to you about Theophilus, and here's how I did my research, Luke introduces us to the first of those two characters, to Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. They are older already at this point. Uh, They're childless. Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they're getting up in years. The second character is this young peasant girl, a teenager, probably around the age of 15. Listen to what Luke writes in the beginning of chapter, uh, in Luke 1, verse 11. He Just before this, he tells us that Zechariah is at the temple where he is serving God in his priestly role. He's actually drawn by Lot to go into the temple and burn incense. And so he goes in. uh, There's Outside the temple, there is this assembly of worshipers. And beginning verse 11, here's what Luke tells us. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with this story, uh, this part of the story, you'll know that Zechariah doesn't respond as, as he should have. He, he responds with doubt. He, he, he questions this. In fact, he, he asks the angel Gabriel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The story, this story closely parallels the narrative that happens next with Mary. We're introduced to Mary, who we're told is a virgin, engaged to be married, but not yet uh, married. And she's from a small town of Nazareth of about 200 people. Uh, the same angel, Gabriel, uh, speaks to her, encounters her, and, and here's what we read beginning verse 28. The angel went to her, to Mary, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. I want us to consider these two narratives side by side. Uh, One follows the other, and they closely parallel one another in a a variety of ways, and and Zechariah and Mary are contrasted. If we, in both stories, the angel Gabriel makes an appearance to Zechariah and to Mary, 
In both, the character involved, Zechariah and Mary, respond or react with fear. In both, there is an announcement of a coming birth. In both, the child to be born is said to be great. In both, they are told what the name of the child, uh, how they are, what they're to name the child. But their responses differ. Zechariah responds with unbelief, with doubt. Mary responds in faith and surrender. If we didn't know better, we would, we would have to admit that this is not how we would expect this story to unfold. I mean, Zechariah, after all, think about it. Zechariah is a priest. He, he's an older man. He, he would have been, uh, he, he's at the holiest site for the nation of Israel. He's at the temple. Mary, in contrast, is, she's young, which is a strike against her. She's female, which would be another strike against her in that culture. That women and the young were not, did not have high status. And then she's from this hick town of Nazareth. Mary is a nobody from a nowhere place. And yet, it's not Zechariah, but it's Mary that comes out greater in the story. And Mary sings a song, and her words echo the the words of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, where here's what Mary says, He that is God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. There is this great reversal, this strange and unexpected reversal. Mary, this young peasant girl from Nazareth, comes out greater in the story, and Zechariah, this priest serving in the temple comes out uh, l- less than humbled, if you will. He's not a bad character, but, but Mary comes out greater. I-, I want us to turn to another part of the story, and that is the part about Caesar, the, the emperor. He is one with great power power over the empire. Rome is a global power, the dominant world empire, and Augustus, Caesar Augustus, is on the throne. He is with little doubt the most powerful man on the planet in this time. And not just powerful, but seen to be great, a great one. In fact, he puts up brag sheets all over the empire, boasting about all the things he has done for Rome, all over the place. Of course, all those great things he has done, he has done uh, uh, on the, the dime of the people of his empire, whom through their taxes. But nonetheless, he is talked about, he is lifted up, he is held to be this great one of power and greatness. His power, he, he has the power in our story, we see this, to set the agenda for uh, the unfolding events throughout the empire. He, he decrees a census to be taken. This is for the purposes of taxation. Everyone in the empire needed to return to their ancestral home because Rome needed more money. Rome needed to raise more funds for all the great things the great Caesar Augustus would do. So he issues this decree, and everyone returns to their ancestral home. So for Joseph, who is pledged to be married to Mary, finds himself obligated to return to his ancestral home, the town of Bethlehem. And so he travels there with Mary, not yet married, but she is with child, and she's a virgin, we're told, and her pregnancy is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, Caesar was hailed, Caesar was hailed as the savior of the empire. 
as the bringer of peace, what was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And there was relative peace in the empire provided you submitted to them. The Romans brought this great peace, and so Caesar was credited with that. Called the Savior, called the bringer of peace. Caesar was, was hailed as a god by the priests in the imperial temples throughout the empire. And yet, as the biblical narrative reveals to us ultimately, it is not Caesar who is ultimately the great one. It is not Caesar who is the Savior. It is not Caesar who is the bringer of peace. It is Jesus. This one not born in a palace, not hailed by imperial priests, not surrounded by the elites, not called great. No, in fact, Jesus' birth is hailed by shepherds. An announcement of His birth is made to this gang of, of shepherds. Shepherds were basically a despised class, a despised group of people in the empire. They were thought to be, well, thought to be, they, they were smelly. They, they were this ragged group of, of ruffians. And despite the fact that in the biblical account, in the biblical narrative, there are shepherds who sometimes fulfilled great roles. We think of Moses. We think of David. We think of the prophet Amos. But in Rome, in the Roman Empire, shepherds were low-class, blue-collar nobodies. And yet it was to them that the announcement of Christ's birth was made. Here's what we read, picking up the story in Luke 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Caesar is the great one. Caesar is hailed as the great one. Hailed as a god. He is the, the mover and shaker, the one with all the power, it would seem. And yet Jesus is announced to lowly shepherds as the King, the Messiah, the Savior. Following that announcement by the angel, there's a great multitude of angels that burst onto the scene and they praise God. And when they leave, the shepherds say to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. These men, these smelly, lowly, despised men are the ones who receive this angelic announcement of the birth of a king, of the true Savior, of the one who is truly the bringer of peace, not Caesar, not in the halls of power, not the great ones, but shepherds. The third part of the story I want to look to is, is another detail around Mary and Joseph's arrival in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, remember Mary expecting a child, arrive in Bethlehem and find that there is no room for them. I want us to look at some of the details around this part of the story because some of the ideas, some of the images that we have, some of the, the images that appear on Christmas carols and in Christmas pageants are not actually grounded in the text of Scripture. Uh, there is a character, in fact, who, who has graced church stages throughout the, the years in many a Christmas pageant, who we don't actually encounter in the nativity story. And that is the famous innkeeper. Uh, there's no innkeeper here in the text. In fact, the genesis of that character comes from this line in the gospel, there was no place for them in the inn. Now, 
you may have noticed when I read from the NIV that it didn't read no place for them in the, in the inn. It said here, there was no guest room available. Now, some translations still translate that word as in. But the reality is, if you look ahead in Luke to Jesus telling this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the, the, the normal word for in appears in chapter 10. This word is actually a different word. It is, it is so rarely ever used to mean in. It, it more accurately simply means guest room or room. And so I, I want you to, to think with me for a moment. We have visions of Joseph and Mary arriving in town late at night and, and stopping by every Holiday Inn and Motel 6 only to discover no vacancy anywhere. And uh, this innkeeper, who's not in the text, saying, sorry, no room, sorry, no room. But, but let me ask you a question. Where were they going? They were going to Joseph's ancestral home. They were going to where his family comes from, which, which means they're going to a place where Joseph has family. Almost certainly, Joseph and Mary go to the home of relatives, so, so almost, almost surely they weren't turned away by an innkeeper. It's, it's in fact almost worse. They're turned away by family, by relatives. Because the house is full. There's no room in the guest house. Other people have come. The house is full. And so Mary and Joseph are offered what was probably a lower level in the house where animals were kept. And despite the fact that that's certainly not an ideal place for them to stay or for Mary to give birth, it may well have been a bit more private, at least from human, uh, other, uh, other humans, uh, as far as a house overflowing with other relatives who have gathered in Bethlehem uh, according to the census, in, in, in obedience to the census. But there's another detail I want to highlight. Mary shows up in Bethlehem with Joseph at likely relative's house, unmarried and expecting a child. That, that would have been scandalous. We don't actually know for certain whether Mary was, was showing at this point. The text, we, all, our, all the Christmas movies have Joseph and Mary showing up. Mary is nine months pregnant, I think, and, and she goes into labor right away. But the text actually does not tell us that. It, it simply says, while they were there, that is, they arrived in Bethlehem, and at some point, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a son. But assuming she showed up, they showed up closer to that time of the birth. If she showed up showing an unmarried, it would have been scandalous. And so perhaps as relatives meet them at the door, there's some, some hesitancy to welcome this immoral uh, relative and his, his, uh, his fiancée. I mean, we, we don't know some of those things for sure, but, but that, would have been, that would have been utterly scandalous. Would have been a huge deal. And Mary's story about the Holy Ghost thing might not have seemed so believable to aunts and uncles. Regardless, Mary and Joseph find themselves in the place where animals were kept. And an animal feeding trough ends up serving as the crib for baby Jesus when he is born. For Jesus, God in flesh. For the King. For the Savior. For the, the one who is actually the bringer of peace. Jesus was born 
in the humblest of circumstances under the, the shadow of scandal. There is so much in this story that is surprising that doesn't make sense in many ways from a human perspective. Not what we would have expected. It's not the elites, the powerful, the esteemed who come as, out as the great ones. Rather, it is a peasant teenage girl and a bunch of smelly shepherds. Jesus is born in this place of this, this humble birth under the shadow of scandal in a lowly animal shelter. This seems foolish. I mean, it, it seems unthinkable. If we were to write this story, if we were to plan the entrance into, into Bethlehem of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God in the flesh, we would not have devised this plan. Yet this is what it looked like when God put on flesh and came to dwell among us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the foolishness of the cross. Uh, the cross to the Jews seemed utterly foolish. And to the Gentiles, it seemed utter weakness. Yet Paul says the cross is in fact the, the wisdom of God, the power of God. Well, very much in line with what Paul says about the cross, those same things can be said of Christ's coming. The foolishness, the weakness of Christ's coming. It's, it's not in splendor. It's not to the greats. It's in humility. It's to the lowly that Jesus comes. He, Jesus comes for all. He comes for the greats. Luke writes to Theophilus, who was probably a, a man of some status. Jesus comes for all. But He comes in humility. And He comes to the lowly who recognize their great need. That, that salvation is not about our status. It's not about our greatness. It's not about our circumstances beyond the reality of our lostness. Salvation in Christ's coming is about the amazing grace of our amazing God, our amazing Savior. The One who made us is the One who became one of us in order that through faith in Him, we might be born again. Jesus came humbly. He came humbly and was born in humble circumstances of a humble teenage girl in this small Judean town. And Jesus grew up and He would have worked as a blue-collar worker much of His life. And, and then we know the story of His arrest he is tried and convicted and whipped and dies for us humbly, bearing our sin, bearing our shame. It is the story of the Gospel. It is the story of God incarnate who comes for us, who comes for those who know their brokenness, who comes in what appears to be this foolish story, this, these unbelievable details circumstances. He comes in humility out of love for us, out of love for you, and out of love for me. And He lays down His life so that through faith in Him, we might receive new life. Here's the glory of Christmas. That Jesus has come for such as us. He's come for the lowly. He's come for the weak. He's come for the broken. He's come for the nobodies. 
He's come for all those around us. And then He bids that we walk after Him. That the man, Though the manner of His coming may seem foolish, it may not make sense, and the manner of His rescue may appear foolish, the cross, with all its shame and pain before a watching world, so is the manner of our following after Him. We are called as those who put our faith in Jesus. We trust in, we worship a crucified Messiah, a crucified King, a humble King. And as His followers, we are called to do what in the eyes of the world will be foolish, to lose our lives for Him, to forsake all for Him, to give up everything for Him. My prayer and my hope is that this Christmas we will see Jesus. We will see this story afresh and recognize again that Jesus came in great humility. He came in humble circumstances and He came for those not who had it all together, but for those who know their deep need that we might through faith in Him receive the gift of life and follow Him, our humble King. Amen.